So in the course of a discussion, we were just, um, I think yesterday we ended on how to get rid of the fear of death and, you know, how to develop courage. And I can tell you one very, very simple way, extremely simple. I don't know why don't we don't do it, is to read Shurabindo. It's very simple and I'll read some passages and see how beautiful and powerful it can be. And if we allow it to just resonate in our heads, it can take away many things from our... Uh, it, it just clears and cleans. Reading Shurabindo is to do yoga. It clears many cobwebs from our heads, uh, gives a lot of clarity, light, strength, courage. And that's what these writings are meant for. And very often people say that, um, you know, why, do, why doesn't Shurabindo tell us a technique like many, you know, uh, modern gurus, you know, this is the way. Uh, because Shurabindo doesn't tell us a technique because Shurabindo does it for us. So I may use the term, Shurabindo is the technique. Or to use a biblical phrase, he is the way and the path. So when we read Shurabindo, he automatically, spontaneously clears these things inside us and creates the field of consciousness which becomes ready and more receptive to the higher consciousness. And that is the purpose of these writings. They are not meant for an intellectual discourse and uh, an easy-to-do things and processes and techniques. They are not necessary, honestly, if you read Shurabindo. And at one place in Yoga and the Objects, he also says that um, in traditional yoga, we are taught methods, do so many japas, so many pranayam, so many exercises every day. But in this yoga, because it is a method of the infinite, so we don't rely on any of these methods. And he uses the word, they are human ways. But ours is the way of the infinite Shakti. Maybe if time permits, tomorrow we'll take out that passage. But today this passage from a writing of Sri called Isha Vasi Upanishad, it is based on the Isha Upanishad. But um, it's, it uses a format of guru-student dialogue literally the way of the Upanishads and put it very contextual in the modern context like the student asks Shurabindo or the guru questions about, you know, Leaky says this and so and so says this uh, and this is written in the Upanishads and the Gita. How can this be true and how it can be applied? And Shurabindo through the, uh, you know, voices the guru. So on one side he voices the average man's questions. On the other side through the guru he reveals a lot of truths to us. So this is, of course, one of the uh, very powerful ones, the Isha Vashupanishad. There is a little background of it, so we'll read that first. There is a long discourse of the Guru on Vasudev Kutumb what it means to have one divine family. And the Guru goes on to say, We may never have a paradise on earth, but if it is ever to come, it will come not when all mankind are as brothers, for brothers jar and hate as much and often more than mere friends or strangers. You see, it's not enough simply to say that all of us are brothers. 
But when all mankind has realized that it is one self, nor can that be until mankind has realized that all existence is one self. For if an united humanity tyrannize over bird and beast and insect, the atmosphere of pain, hatred and fear, breathing up from the lower creation, will infect and soil the purity of the earth. It looks like Shirobinda had already anticipated these movies where, you know, humanity has become one and on Independence Day, this today is Independence Day, and there's a movie on Independence Day where aliens have attacked and, you know, there is always an enemy somewhere or the other and humanity is unitedly fighting against that enemy. Now, this is not utopia or a paradise. It can't come like that because whole humanity may be united as one mankind and tyrannize over bird and beast and other creatures and finish this paradise. The law of karma is inexorable and whatever you deal out to others, even such shall be the effect on yourself. Do you think then that this strange thing will ever come about, that mankind in general will ever come to see in the dog and the vulture, in the snake that bites and the scorpion that stings their own self, that they will say unto death, my brother, and to destruction, my sister? Nay, that they will know these things as themselves, Sarva Bhuteshu Chatman, and this is from the Ishupanishad. So the student says, it does not seem possible. And now the Guru reveals, and that is very powerful. It does not, and yet the impossible repeatedly happens. So to start with, Shrivind reminds us that if you think it's impossible, you have already taken the first step. This is how nature works. So the impossible repeatedly happens. At any rate, if you must have an ideal of the far-off event to which humanity moves, cherish this. So we are, you know, there are all kinds of talks, even, you know, inter-religious dialogue and trying to, you know, make humanity one and lot kind, all kinds of things happen. But what is the way, the process? So here he says, distrust all utopias that seek to destroy sin or scrape away part of the soil in which it grows while preserving intact the very roots of sin. Ahankar, born of ignorance and desire. So simply by a moral tinkering of nature that we will not do this and we will do this. This is called scraping away the surface. But the roots are there. Roots are ahankar and desire. It will take one form or the other. And once again, we will spring up into the same problem. So, merely scraping the surface as moralists do is not enough. We give too much importance to externalities, but we forget that the roots are much deeper. For once ahankar is there, likes and dislikes are born. Rag Dvesho, the primal couple of dualities. Liking for what fathers the satisfaction of desire, dislike for what hinders it. This is so practical. Every life we observe it and we have to observe it even more acutely. That who are the people we call, you know, we like and call our own? Those who flatter us. And it's so easy. Uh, people who are into marketing learn this skill very fast. That, you know, how to enter a house and Start by saying, oh, you have a lovely house. So one product is gone. And the next is like, you know, it's so nice. Uh, you know, sir, you're really looking so good. And that's the next product. 
so this is this not how it can come about because human beings quickly learn the art of deception the sense of possession the sense of loss attraction repulsion charm repugnance love hatred pity cruelty kindness wrath the infinite and eternal procession of the dualities that's why even inculcating virtues is not enough because the moment you inculcate a virtue its shadow vice will follow you and as long as we do it under the stress of the ego it's bound to bring its other side it's in fact already there look what happened to karna this the story we were talking about in the morning karna was a virtuous man and his virtue became a cause for dragging him with a hook to hell he was generous but he was not rid of ahankar so he turned his generosity in favor of somebody who had given him a kingdom and he said well i have given my promise to him and you know i am his friend and i am going to stand by him and it led to ruin bhishma was a great man he stood by his promise dronacharya all these people were great and their very goodness was turned towards destruction simply because they had not got themselves rid of ahankar and ahankar primarily here in their case the satvik ahankar the ahankar of being good man this is a very difficult thing to get rid of i mean it's easy to get rid of the ahankar of bad man but to get rid of the ahankar of goodness admit but one pair and all the others come tumbling in its wake but the man who sees himself in all creatures cannot hate he shrinks from none he has neither repulsion nor fear tato na vijugupsate so the way to get rid of fear one method is suggesting to us that as long as we have the ego the fear is bound to come because there will always be the other and the other will be either stronger and weaker so if he is weaker there is a tendency to overrun and if he is stronger there is a tendency to shrink and be afraid yonder leper whom all men shun but shall i shun him who know that from this strange disguise the brahman looks out with smiling eyes i uh, call these passages of shirbindo as guided meditation so this is the way to meditate a dynamic meditation in life so as we walk on the road we see things people who don't look very pleasant don't are not to our liking and we have to learn to compel ourselves to see or at least believe imagine think that even in them the divine dwells so this is what he is asking us to see this foeman who comes with a sword to pierce me through the heart i look beyond the sharp threatening sword beyond the scowling brow and the eyes of hate and i recognize the mask of my self this is the path that every time somebody comes hates insults who is he he too is wearing a mask and it can be applied so many ways in practice when somebody asks mother uh, mother um, how to deal with people who hate and uh, you know uh, who insult so mother says that ego can never be insulted it is only the Uh, uh, ego is the one which feels insulted the soul can never be insulted so we have to more and more realize that which is the part that is getting hurt why is it getting hurt now if somebody criticizes she says look inside maybe through this person uh, something is being revealed to us which we don't know about ourselves 
And if it is true, then work upon it. Rejoice because you have come to know about something which is like a defect in our nature. And if it is not true, then don't worry about it because anyways it's not true. So such a simple remedy at practical level, we can apply it. Thereafter I shall neither fear the sword nor hate the bearer. O myself who foolishly callest thyself mine enemy, how canst thou be my enemy? Unless I choose. So there is always a choice. Friend and enemy are but creations of the mind. That myriad working magician, that great dreamer and artist. And if I will not to regard thee as my enemy, thou canst no more be such than a dream or a shadow can. As indeed thy flashing sword is but a dream and thy scowling brow but a shadow. So we have to look behind appearances. So there are two ways that the yoga of knowledge is practiced and Shurabindu is revealing us another way. One way is that to go deep inside and say this not me, this not me, this not me, I am the self. This one way, traditional way. But this is a limited way. Because after realizing the self, we have to extend this self in all creatures. But this is another way. To look deep into the world and its appearances. Not to withdraw into within, but go deep inside everything and regard everything as a shadow and deep inside is the one self. So these are the two ways through which we can practice. And obviously the second way leads us to a greater wideness. But thou will divide me with thy sword. So he says that, you know, you say, oh, this is very nice. But see what I am going to do next. You believe that, you know, all are one self and sword is but a dream. But I am going to cut you to pieces. But thou wilt div- uh, divide me with thy sword. Thou wilt slay me, pierce me with bullets, torture me with fire, blow me from the mouth of thy cannon. Me thou canst not pierce. This is the realization in which the yogin lives. For I am unslayable, unpierceable, indivisible, unburnable, immovable. So this was the path in the Upanishads and the Gita if we read. So many people took to just reading the Gita and the Upanishads as a way. Um, Seldom you will find in the Upanishads a process or a technique. That sit like this, practice this japa, do this meditation. No, they don't talk about it. But merely by meditating upon these great revelations, their truth begins to get realized in our being. This was the method Sri himself used while in the Alipur jail, two verses from the Ishupanishad, one of them which he is talking of, Sarabhuteshu Chatmanang, he used to very often recite and the truths get revealed. So that is the path that merely by reading Savitri or reading Sri it becomes a yoga. So very often we are reading through Sri trying to find a way of yoga. But reading Sri is a yoga because it begins to create that kind of uh, change within us. So if we meditate upon this idea that I am unslayable, unslayable, unpierceable, thou canst but tear this dress of me, this food sheath or multiplied protoplasm which I wear. I am what I was before. I will not be angry with thee even, for who would trouble himself to be angry with a child? 
because in its play or little childish wrath it has torn his dress so he is taking us to what heights so angry at what this wonderful story about sage mandavya we I, some of us may not have shared it but i think yesterday or day before we were talking about this story that uh, shubindo has written meditations on mandavya so probably there is some connection with shubindo so mandavya is um, by mistake the king believes that he is a robber he is misinformed and without seeing the sage he condemns him to punishment that he has to sleep on a bed of nails for the night so he sleeps for the, on the bed of nails and next day morning when they come to throw away his corpse they see that he is sitting and meditating so they are shocked that how he is alive so he, they go and tell the king there is some problem we can't figure out who is he now but we found the jewelry at his place so probably he is a thief so the king comes and he recognizes and he says how foolish you people have done and then he begs pardon at the falling at the feet of sage mandavya and the rishi tells him who are you he said i am the king he says okay but why are you falling at my feet why are you seeking forgiveness so he says because i am the one who condemned you to this whole night of torture he said oh is it he says yes he says i think you you are thinking too great of yourself so he is all confused he says you could not have done this unless destiny did it for me you are just a mere instrument you think too much of yourself get out of my way he says where are you going he says i am going to ask death and destiny why this has happened to me so this is another vision in which one can rise that is why shubindo writes in one of his aphorism that people talk of forgiveness but whom shall i forgive who is the other one shall i say to my left hand why has thou hit me shall i say to god that why has thou given me a blow so this is the vision towards which the upanishad takes us you know we are talking about death and how he is looking at it perhaps i valued the dress and would not so soon have parted with it i will try then to save it if i may and even punish thee without anger so that thou mayest not tear more dresses so look how he is also combining the practical aspects of this life that the consciousness will be very different but if i cannot well it was but a cloth and another can soon be had from the merchant nay have i not already paid the purchase money oh my judge what would have been shurbindo's yoga in alipur jail see how he is writing oh my judge thou who sittest pronouncing that i be hanged by the neck till i be dead because i have broken thy laws perchance to give bread to starving thousands perchance to help the men of my country whom thou wouldst keep as slaves for thy pleasure me will thou hang Are you sure you are going to hang me? When thou canst shake the sun from heaven or wrap up the skies like a garment, then shall power be given thee to hang me. This is the story of Krishna that he goes to Duryodhana, and he says, "I am going to hang him. I am going to put him in the cell. I am going to kill him." So Sri Krishna, he doesn't use words, but does the same thing. 
He says, okay, you want to do this? All right. Bring a rope wide enough to tie the whole universe. Then, yes, you can make me a slave and a bandi. So, Duryodhana tries but in vain. So, here he says the same thing, that me will thou hang? Okay, you bring a rope which can shake the hills and take away the universe. Then you can do this. Who or what is this thou deemest will die by hanging? A bundle of animal kewl no more. This outward thou and I are but stage masks. Behind them is one who neither slayeth nor is slain. Mask called a judge, play thou thy part, I have played mine. And this is exactly what Sri did when uh, Chitranjan Das asked him, or counsel. He said, I don't have to give any counsel. And he actually ended up seeing Krishna Vasudevin, the judge, in the advocate, in the other pleader, and he saw Vasudev everywhere. So this is the vision of the yoga. Yoga is not an intellectual exercise. It's not just a technique or a mother uh, method, but a constant vision of the one. This is called knowledge in the true sense. Knowledge is not information gathering or a scholarly knowledge about the various systems, paths, religious doctrines, dogmas, beliefs, non-beliefs. All this is irrelevant. It is a knowledge of the one, a constant vision of the one in all. And it comes by constantly fixing the mind on that one. And life offers so many opportunities every day. And we have to keep on bringing back our awareness to that this too is mother, this too is mother, this too is mother, this too is mother. An aspect of the mother. So when somebody gets angry, mother Kali. When somebody is loving and kind, mother Lakshmi. When somebody feeds, mother Annapurna. That's how one has to see a countless ways of the Divine Mother coming and dealing with us. The Purusha is one, but the Mother assumes many aspects. So this is the path of the, the great path of the Upanishads. O son of the ancient yoga, realize thyself in all things. This takes away fear. Fear nothing, loathe nothing, dread none, hate none. But do thy part with strength and courage, so shall thou be what thou truly art. What we truly are? God. In thy victory, God. In thy defeat, God. In thy very death and torture. God who will not be defeated and who cannot die. Shall God fear any? Shall he despair? Shall he tremble and shake? So this constant meditation on the sense of the divine, not only within in some special moment, but in life. Behind all the masks and appearances, behind the terrible, behind the beautiful, behind the ugly, behind the good, they are all masks of the one. Nay, it is the insects that form thy body and brain which shake and tremble. Thou within them sittest looking with calm eyes at their pain and terror, for they are but shadows that dream of themselves as a reality. Realize the self in all creatures. Realize all creatures in the self. 
then in the end terror shall flee thee terror shall flee from thee in terror what a phrase this is terror will come and flee away in terror pain shall not touch thee lest itself be tortured by thy touch death shall not dare to come near to thee lest he be slain yasmin sarvani bhutani atme vabhud vijanata tatra ko moha kashoka ekatvam anupashyata this is a method if we like of realizing the self of transcending death of going beyond all fear and all sense of sin and grief and suffering and all the things but we have to be very careful if we want one then the other will follow so very often when we talk about yoga to give success you will always be happy with yoga so if you want happiness joy <coughs> sorrow will be just hanging around the corner it will not be seen but as joy enters sorrow will be soon the moment success comes failure will be just round the corner so it's not these things that we have to want but the one self and the divine and to constantly rise in the vision of the divine so this is a wonderful way to get rid of all fear then he gives some very practical examples that is the realization of the mighty ideal the moral and practical result of perfected vedanta that in us all things will become our self there she is the shruti in the man whose self has become all creatures what delusion can there be or what sorrow for wherever he looks he sees nothing but the great oneness nothing but god nothing but his own self of love and bliss delusion moha is the mistaking of the appearance for the reality bewilderment by the force of maya so what are the examples he gives us this house that my fathers had was mine and alas i have lost it so very often people say ah this is mine because legally it is mine and then we are caught in what did god do i had a legal uh, hard earned money which i bought this and it is gone but this delusion because it in reality it never was mine now he says that uh, this is a practice it doesn't come straight away so it has gone away this was my wife whom i loved and she is lost to me forever alas how has my son disappointed me from whom i hoped so much so all these things come in life to teach us vedanta they are our teachers so our gurus are not just those who are sitting in some nice ashramas or you know very neatly pickpocketing and <laughs> giving us a method 100 dollars a method but these are the gurus who come wife is the guru when she gets angry this is the time to remember she too is the self mother kali ranchandi is there to slay my ego offer the head at her altar and see how beautiful it is it's 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 true no she too is kali <laughs> yeah yeah when 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 a lady gets angry 
Treat her as Kali. This is the best way. <laughs> she is a goddess at that point. You can't fight Kali. Don't try to do that. Don't try to reason out with Kali. <laughs> Let your ego be slain. Don't get into argument. I am right. Because you can never be right. When Kali stands before you. <laughs> because ego is wrong. The problem is not you are right or she is right. Problem is ego believes always it is right. But ego can never be right. So give that. You know this is the way. So she comes to teach us yoga. And all for free. <laughs> and if we have not learned the child comes to teach us yoga. Dad don't have these expectations from me. These are your ideas. I have my own mind. So what is he doing? Tearing off those opinions that we hold very dear. Oh, he is not following my method, my way, my virtues, my religion, my culture. Yeah, but he is liberating me. He is already liberated, perhaps. <laughs> and if we still don't do any of these things while we are alive and countless gurus come to us, then death will come as the last guru. You call this yourself? Come, I'll take this away. No, no, please. I have so carefully preserved it with great difficulty. I daily go to gym, do all my exercises. I don't even smoke e-cigarettes. How can you kill me? The doctors have done my NGO and said, my cardiac is perfect. Yes, but you have something else. It will find a door and we'll have grief and we'll have fear and we'll have terror. So we have to do these things, but not with the consciousness of fear and terror and self-preservation, but simply because these are things which are instrument of the divine. So Yagnvalk is asked, Yagnvalk is incidentally the, supposed to be the author of the Ishupanishad, and he is asked by his wife that why does one love the wife or the child or the country? And he says, not for the sake of the wife does one love the wife, but for the sake of the self. Not for the sake of the child, one loves the child, but for the sake of the self. And then he says, Sri interprets it so beautifully. He says, as is the self, so is our love. When the self is the self of ego, then the love is egoistic and it's bound to bring suffering. You just cannot avoid it. You may try however hard you may. The so-called perfect child, the so-called perfect husband, perfect wife, this is delusion. It cannot make us happy. Even when the person is perfect, it won't make you happy because each one will have his own idea of perfection. But when we discover that they are all masks, different ways, so he's, but we have to treat them from the point of view of the higher self. That they are there as aspects of the higher self. No, my own aspects which are near me to remind me of something that I have forgotten within me. This is a deeper psychology. That everybody who is around me is not there by chance. They are nothing but portions of my own nature. Mother used a very beautiful term. The world is a mirror of yourself. So they are all near me because mirrors are being shown to me. They are all gurus and therefore all worthy of respect and gratitude. So this is the great teaching which liberates us. All these are the utterances of delusion. Okay, no, uh, one more line. 
this office for which I hoped and schemed. My rival, the man I hated has got it. You see in the Gita we have this, uh, you know when Sri Krishna speaks of the Devasuri Sampada. Then he speaks of these very sentences as the Asuri Sampada. But the problem is we are all the time letting these sentences buzz in our head. And then we believe that just half an hour we will sit in meditation and have some realization. No, it won't happen. The voice of the night is all the time crying into our ears and we have to learn to reject it. So this is where, you know, when we talk about rejection, this is to be rejected. All these are the utterances of delusion and the result of delusion is shoka, sorrow. But to one whose self has become all creatures, there can be no delusion and therefore no sorrow. He does not say, I, Devdath, has lost this house. What a calamity. He says, I, Devdath, have lost this house, but it has gone to me, Harishchandra. That is fortunate. This is why we see that how Harishchandra could walk away, giving away his kingdom to Vishwamitra. What a story. That in dream, he has seen that someone has come and what a greatness is there in Indian thought, you know, to what extent people could go. How small and petty we have become and what a greatness there was that in a dream the man has seen a person come and he has asked him to give the kingdom and he has promised. There is no legal document at all, no word of exchange. And next day when he comes to take the kingdom, he says, yes, I was waiting for you. Here is it, take it and I shall walk. Look at the story of Rama. We talk about Ramayana and we talk about Ram Ravana war. But look at how Rama can renounce a whole kingdom for the sake of one promise and he is gone. Look at Shurabindo. How he could renounce both worldly success and spiritual success. One can understand renouncing worldly success for the sake of spiritual success. But he renounces both. Because when he moved away to Pondicherry, he renounced at once material success. He was already at the peak of it. And he also renounced spiritual success because he had the highest realizations of Vedanta, of the different paths. And yet he had to drop them so that he can get on to the new path. The mother speaks about it in in her prayers that, you know, I have tasted successively all the realizations and you have again taken them away from me. And that at one point she says, now I understand what they mean in India by saying, renouncing the fruit of your spiritual efforts. You talk about renouncing fruits, the Gita, some material goods, renouncing the fruits of your spiritual efforts. Such a being is ready for the supramental path. And this is the great path open for us by the Shruti. I can lose nothing except to myself. Nor shall I weep because my wife is dead and lost. Who is not lost at all, but as near to me as ever, since she is still myself, in myself, with myself, as much after death, as when her body was underneath my hands. I cannot lose myself. My son has disappointed me. He has taken his own way and not mine. Look how practical Shurabindu's writings are. It's not for you. It's for your parents. Okay? You practice the other way. My dad has disappointed me. 
He doesn't understand me? Yeah, that should be the way. But he has not disappointed himself. Who is myself? He has only disappointed the sheath, the case, the mental cell in which I was imprisoned. The vision of the one self dispels all differences. An infinite calm, an infinite love, an infinite charity, an infinite tolerance is the very nature of the strong soul that has seen God. We can't practice these virtues simply by you know, talking about them. But by the vision of the one and all, they spontaneously grow. The sign of such a person is infinite love, infinite tolerance, infinite charity. The sin, the stain, the disease, the foulness of the world cannot pollute his mind nor repel his sympathy as he stoops to lift the sinner from the dung heap in which he wallows. He does not shrink from the odor that stains his own hands. His eyes are not bedimmed by tears when he lifts up the shrieking sufferer out of his pit of pain. He lifts him as a father lifts his child who has stumbled in the mire and is crying. The child chooses to think he is hurt and cries. The father knows he is not really hurt. Therefore he does not grieve. But neither does he chide him. Rather he lifts him up and soothes the willful imaginary pain. All the mothers, parenting. This is the way to parent but from the highest point of view. How does the divine deal with us? We have these conceptions. Oh, the divine will condemn us. He is a sinner. He is a you know, man. He is guilty. He must be punished in some narak. You know, we have imagined such gory tortures of hell. Where some people are supposed to burn in some fire. And then as a relief they are put on ice. Which is not a relief at all. Because if you are burnt in fire for 6 months and 1 day of cold north pole. It's worse. Because you have got used to the fire. So this is not relief. This is not the way of the yoga. This is not the understanding of yoga. The understanding of yoga is that. How the divine deals with us. If we fall. He lifts us up, cleans us up and says, go ahead, go with your path, go upon your path. So what a wonderful <coughs> Such a soul has become God mighty and loving to help and save not weak to weep and increase the ocean of human tears with his own. So you will see in this sutras, even for everyday life, in our relationships, even with children, with each other, not pity, but compassion that leans forever to help and succor, but does not weaken those who are being helped. Because who is being helped but your own self? Buddha did not weep when he saw the suffering of the world. He went forth to save. And surely such a soul will not grieve over the buffets the outward world seems to give to his outward self. For how can he grieve who is all this universe? <coughs> the pain of, the pe of his petty, un 
personal self is no more to his consciousness than the pain of a crushed ant to a king as he walks musing in his garden bearing on his shoulders the destiny of nations so that's all that's the consciousness in which we have to rise our personal pain we are so much concerned with this whereas we have to first be freed from that oh what's happening in my personal life if i take to this yoga that's why many people who cling to the so called you know living gurus they are not really going for yoga or for divine they are going to have some magician in their life who with a magic wand will give them it's like reserving a birth in heaven and assuring the goodies on earth but there is no birth of, on heaven and there is no guarantee of goodies on earth nobody can guarantee and if somebody is doing that he is simply fooling us for everybody there are goodies and there are the poison fruits and the ideal yogin is he who takes both and turns it to honey there is a very beautiful line in shobindo's thoughts and aphorism turn all things to honey this is the rule of divine living in one line he has given it good experiences to honey bad experiences to honey and everything becomes a catalyst for the divine life and then couple of lines below he says there are two ways of attaining to gyana to the vision one is the way of insight the other the way of world sight we can be in the world but don't be guided and carried away by appearances that's all shurbindo is saying look deeper see the play of forces look deeper and see the one divine behind everything and if you can do it it's more perfect than sitting and regaining insight because eventually that will leave us to that there are two ways of bhakti one by devotion to the self as lord of all concentrated within you the other by devotion to the self as lord of all extended in the universe so to love the divine in all is the other way that is also bhakti bhakti is not only making an idol and doing puja paath and you know only feeding the ego but seeing all as krishna there are two ways of karma one by yoga quiescence of the sheets and the ineffable unacting yet all enveloping omnipotence of the self within the other by quiescence of desire and selfless activity of the sheets for the wider self in the universe so if we quieten the desire and do the karmas spontaneously we will be risen to this great vision of the upanishads and just as a to corroborate with this few lines of savitri and then we will have uh, more of like interactions what happens uh, the first victory over death how does it come what does it mean this is on page 633 in savitri the debate of love and death same truth now savitri brings out i will start reading from page 632 there beautiful lines
out of the void this grand creation rose. For this the spirit came into the abyss and charged with its power matters unknowing force. In night's bare session to cathedral light in death's realm repatriate immortality. So very often people say, you know, really the big problem with mukti is this, that why you got bound by lower nature and lower creation? This is the purpose, to transform. It's logical. But to say that escape, then why this came into being at all? Why Why were we first entangled into this mesh if this was the end of things? So here Shurabindo uh, reveals to us through Savitri that this was the purpose why the soul, the child of immortality has plunged into the realm of death because it wants to bring immortality back upon earth. It has that capacity but we have forgotten it and we have lost it. So we have to establish that light, that love here upon earth and that is our great task. And then he gives an example that you don't believe it, look how it happens. A mystic, slow transfiguration works. All our earth starts from mud and ends in sky. So every day we see this evidence of transformation. The soil and the seed change into a wonderful flowering tree. And love that was once an animal's desire then a sweet madness in the rapturous heart, an ardent comradeship in the happy mind becomes a wide spiritual yearning space. So we have to go through these stages and if we navigate through one stage properly, then we are we graduate to the next one. And if we don't, then we are pushed back into the same experience again and again. That's why whatever experience comes to life, it's a very beautiful doctrine. To live it well, live it fully and do our utmost. Then automatically when the time comes, the divine will take us to the next step. But if you somehow want to haste, escape, cut the knot, it doesn't work out. It will come back again in some form or the other. A lonely soul passions for the alone. The heart that loved man thrills to the love of God. Love of man is the first step. And if we can do it fully and truly, it will automatically lead us to the love of God in all things, everywhere. We don't have to discard one for the sake of the other. In fact, we have to do everything with the perfection and it will automatically lead us to the other. So not to break nature, but to enlarge its scope, boundaries, and then we will enter into the vastness. A body is his chamber and his shrine. Then is our being rescued from separateness. All is itself. All is new felt in God. A lover leaning from his cloister's door gathers the whole world into his single breast. Then shall the business fail of night and death. I love this word, business of night and death. What is its business? Separation. That's why Shravindo in Savitri, who is opposing death? Not life, but love. What is the business of love? Union. 
and the business of death is separation so it separates it separates bodies from bodies by a wall of unconsciousness it separates the ego self of one from another ego self by a wall of unconsciousness it separates the world from god by a gulf of unconsciousness it separates nature from soul by another you know we were reading the parishes of heaven and earth by a tenebrous river it doesn't allow us it puts as if in darkness we cannot feel our very hand which is next to us so by a kind of gulf of unconsciousness it separates and love once again brings back the union a lover leaning from his cloister's door gathers the whole world into his single breast then shall the business fail of night and death when unity is won when strife is lost and all is known and all is clasped by love so those who turn shirbindo into a philosopher look what shirbindo is saying when all is known and all is clasped by love who would turn back to ignorance and pain this exactly what we are reading in the ishupanishad and at one place death tells savitri you have a very violent heart and you love but you don't know when you know then you shall cease to love and savitri says when i have loved all then i shall know it's a very just the paradox and this exactly what we read now oh death i have triumphed over thee within so before we talk about physical immortality etc how to triumph over death i quiver no more with the assault of grief tatra ko moha ka shoka ekatva manupashyata exactly the same truth of the ishupanishad is being given here in powerful words a mighty calmness seated deep within has occupied my body and my sense it takes the world's grief and transmutes to strength like shiva why because behind the hand of behind the poison we yet see the divine presence this is a beautiful story of mirabai so mirabai you know she tries many things and she is a great yogin and at the end you know she gathers many people who are jealous of her she is given a cup of poison so mira says ah my krishna has sent it she swallows it and as the story goes she dances and fuses into the idol of krishna it's a beautiful story if we can reach to that point where even in the cup of poison we can see that this is sent by the divine and we are not worried about appearances then we can realize that utter unity with whole creation but it requires tremendous courage and obviously constant vision of the one we are suspicious even of sweets <laughs> leave aside poison of course sweets are poison to the diabetic that was a brief commercial break to break the monotony but the fact is that <laughs> yeah we can learn to see the divine in all things mother says this story of shri ramakrishna who was bit by a cobra and he just brushes aside says what mother you have come to me like this this is the way we have to and the the more we are living in the ego the more our life will be full of frustration suffering pain 
and whatever practice we may adopt this practice that yoga this method hot yoga cold yoga nothing will work because the root is the ego self and as long as it is there it will come even in our well isolated insulated air conditioned rooms this is the story of bhagavat we are talking about death this is again the same story so king parikshit is told within a week he is going to die so now he has two courses one is to employ the best physicians in the world to safeguard him his son even wants to do a nag yagya i'll kill all the cobras all the snakes my dad is to die with the snake okay i am going to destroy all the snakes and he is shivering with fear people have all his people have put him under seven locks so parikshit doesn't know what to do now that after seven days i am going to die what is the way what is the way then he asks a seer what is the way he says see whatever way you may try today or tomorrow death will find you if not one week after seven years what is there but this is a wonderful opportunity to get yourself free from the fear of death and realize immortality so you see is there a way he says yes there is a way is there a short way because i have very little time yes there is a short way what is the way so the rishi says just read or listen the story of krishna in bhagavat so shikshyorbindu has upgraded it the new bhagavat savitri the story of the divine mother just listen to it in one week the fear of death everything vanishes so he is given that option so he chooses that option so after seven days days when death comes in the form of a worm he says fine i am ready the snake is in the flower he says i am ready to embrace death what is it it makes no meaning to me so this is the triumph over death within and savitri says i have already triumphed by realizing this unity it takes the world's grief and transmutes to strength so all those people who give us pain are actually great helpers on the path and we must tell them thank you so much that you came into my life and helped me grow into yoga and rather than complaining grumbling cursing god cursing them or cursing our fate this is the i the, the way of ignorance it takes the world's joy one it makes the world's joy one with the joy of god even joys we reduce to a very personal egoistic joy we should immediately turn it into the joy of god so we have got a new car instead of ah oh, i got a new car it is better than the neighbor's car dangerous because then another neighbor is going to come with a still better car after few years the model is going going to grow old instead of four circles you will have five circles audi will change into super audi but if you say mother has given me a car mother you be the driver of chariot here or you sit <coughs> i am to go going to go on the drive with you mother then we will make our joy one with god we are given a house and we pride over it my labor my money i got a 
good house and gloat over it. No. Mother, you have given me this place to dwell. May it become your temple. It may be a small hut or it may be a huge house. Turn it into a temple of God. So make our joy one with God. Grief comes to help us grow into strength. And joy comes to help us grow into sweetness of God's delight. My love eternal sits throned on God's calm. For love must soar beyond the very heavens and find its secret sense ineffable. It must change its human ways to ways divine. Yet keep its sovereignty of earthly bliss. This is combining otherworldliness and thisworldliness. It will have the earthly aspect of love. It won't be that, you know, one has risen into that love and therefore na tato, na bandhu, na mata, na pita. <laughs> that is one way, mayavad. But there is another way. Tameva mata, cha pita tameva, tameva bandhu, cha saka tameva. Everybody is nothing else but thou. So love must lean there and yet keep its earthly bliss. This is the way the psychic being can love and combine the love of God with the love of earth. The other is purely the love that is there in the higher spiritual consciousness. And see, I am skipping few lines and then we will close. How beautiful this is. Our lives are God's messengers beneath the stars. She does not want Satyavan only because you know she will have a good life with him. He is the five-figure salaried man after all. Good-looking, handsome, convent educated, etc., etc. But because there is a work the two have to do. So he says, she says, Our lives are God's messengers beneath the stars. To dwell under death's shadow they have come. I have chosen to come to this realm. Nobody has pushed me into this place. I have come. Why? So that I can change it into a place divine and beautiful. Tempting God's light to earth for the ignorant race. His love to fill the hollow in men's hearts. His bliss to heal the unhappiness of the world. For I, the woman, am the force of God. He, the eternal's delegate soul in man. My love, my will is greater than thy law, O death. My love is stronger than the bonds of fate. Our love is the heavenly seal of the supreme. I guard that seal against thy rending hands. Love must not cease to live upon the earth. For love is the bright link twixt earth and heaven. Love is the far transcendence angel here. Love is man's lean on the absolute. Yes, please go ahead. Okay, so um, you said earlier, uh, 
Sometimes I can't differentiate the difference between good and bad because bad lies in subtlety everywhere. So how am I supposed to know what to embrace as the divine? You don't have to judge. You have to turn all experience into honey. It's not always necessary. See, there are two different aspects to the question. One is when you are leading life and you have to do things. So you have to decide what is good and bad. That's a different thing. You are There the rule is very simple. Because it's not about transcending good and bad. It's a rule of action that you are looking for. It's not that somebody has done something to you and you are trying to see whether it, he has done good to me or bad to me. No, that's a different aspect altogether. It's when you are receiving the impacts of the world, then you have to turn them all into honey. Something is painful and you have to discover that alchemist energy which can change it into sweetness and light. Okay? The other is where, and there is a whole process, we can talk about it, but I think your question more relates to when you are acting in the world. So you have to make a choice between what is good and what is bad. Very simple. In the beginning, as a simple rule, whatever leads to a growing sense of ease and peace, joy and strength, calm and sweetness, and love and delight, and unity and harmony, is an action which is good and right. As a simple rule, general rule. It's not that always, uh, it will, don't turn it into an absolute rule, but as a general rule. Whereas all that leads to darkness, more and more ignorance, delusion, maybe momentary thrill, but followed by great pain. All that leads to confusion, hatred, bitterness, jealousies, envy, strife, division, disunity, that is bad. It's a very general rule. And if you follow it, 99.999% you will not be mistaken if you see sincerely. There are many things which we do. You can take any example. Say somebody has, uh, you know, uh, if you give an example, I'll... I'll, uh, I think think my question was like, well, like I understand what you said, but like from this lecture, were you trying to say that we need to transcend between differentiating no, no, not not without differentiating, but to touch the deeper core. Yes, we have to transcend, but we have to touch the deeper core behind it. If you just stop differentiating good and bad without touching the deeper core, one falls into another darkness. So the way of transcendence is to discover the oneself. This is the path that Shurabindu is showing us. Divine is not to be confined into good and bad. These are qualifications of the mind. But they are necessary when we are groping in the ignorance. When we, you know, when you are in ignorance, when, when supposing there is no light, so what will you do? You will be careful what you are holding and how you are walking. Because that's necessary. But when the light comes, what will you do? You'll just walk freely on your path. Okay. So same thing, when we are groping in ignorance, these are devices given to us to some way navigate in the ignorance through life. We should not confuse it with light. It's a device given in ignorance. If there is darkness, I need to know by touch whether it's a snake or a rope. In ignorance. But I have to strive to rise into the light. That is the permanent solution. So, Sri is showing us the way to rise 
permanently into the light. So what is the way? We often create a distinction between good and bad and put God as all that is moral and good and bad as evil, titan, devil. And therefore we are forever logged in a game of virtue and vice. It's alright in ignorance again, again and again. We can't suddenly drop and skip to the other. It will be dangerous. But by constantly meditating upon the vision that the divine is beyond virtue and vices, beyond good and evil, by meditating on the oneself, by constantly reminding ourselves that all these things are masks of the one divine, then a time will come when the masks will fall away. They are no more necessary. So when we rise in that consciousness, then good and evil will pass away from our lists. And along with that, joy and grief. Because we will be living in another state of consciousness where calm and delight take hold of us. Otherwise, we are constantly judging and judging by appearances. And it gives pain. And that's what he's reminding us. When the sun doesn't follow the way that I want him to follow, it gives pain. When the father and the mother don't listen to me, of course for a child, because children are not doing yoga and it's not expected. So that example may not be the accurate example. But you know, it gives pain when somebody, your best friend, doesn't do the way, is not the way you want him to be. So it gives unhappiness. People, you know, enter into jealousies and things like that. That is not the right approach. So we have to learn to, when such things happen, we have to learn to see what lesson we have to get from them. So they become our gurus. We turn all experience. But lesson again is a very tricky thing. For instance, some people drive the lesson that, well, all are cheats and scoundrels. That's not the lesson that is being given to us. What the lesson is, that maybe my love for them was very conditional. That is another lesson. I should have loved without expectations. Yet I should have loved. That's why he is repeatedly telling us, love should not cease to be. We take the other lesson, oh, human beings stay away from them. Deadliest species. That's not the lesson. We have to learn to love, but love truly. And the only way we can love truly is by rising beyond these appearances into the oneness of the divine embrace. So that is the path. Okay? Cleverness of deception? No. Uh, Somebody is... Uh, so we are dealing with human relationship in our daily life. Uh, first time something happens, somebody is jealous or did something. So Somebody will it, cheat us. Let's right. put it like bluntly. Right, cheat us. And we took it as a blow. We take a step back. Okay, I got to understand, whatever. And if it tries to cheat us again, I have to do something or not. It's so like this. Yeah, God, huh, got that. It's like this. Let me put it in the in another context and then we'll come to that. If my goal is to reach Pondicherry, taking my evening flight tomorrow, then on the way, I will not stop to bother myself with a quarrel on the road. If somebody stops me and puts me into an argument, I will say, look, fine, but I don't have time. You win it. It doesn't matter because my goal is to reach there. So if my goal is really the divine self, then these things I have to put aside. They will come my way. 
everybody will have a quota of cheating experiences and mind you it's not because people are bad let me tell you that the same person may be very nice to somebody and for you he brings that experience becomes an instrument of giving you yeah pain or whatever deception and for me that person has come only to help me to stick to my goal to be sincere if i get caught up in this then i'll lose my way so this is the principle now how much one can engage in the practical side that's where the other aspect is yes but it should not be at the expense of the main goal so what will be the expense of the main goal that's what shubhendu brings uh, in the reading maybe i'll punish you he says the child stay your hands but in all this i will not allow my heart to be spoiled by grief or anger or hatred so every time i feel that a storm is boiling inside me i'll have to quieten it wait for it to settle down before i can act and i can tell you this is a wonderful sadhana and it happens you know supposing i'm giving a practical example you get to know somebody whom who is like a friend or maybe a neighbor or someone and you get to know that you know he was speaking ill about you i'm t- telling you a real life experience so what's your first reaction oh is it what was he speaking first of all that question is irrelevant <laughs> cut it off then next you begin to get suspicious oh this man he's dicey get rid of that reaction third i must confront him ask him maybe catch him by the collar and say what you were speaking such things to me get rid of this how is it going to help in our goal at the most look deep inside and see in whatever he has spoken if at all you come to know about it is there some out of truth supposing he says oh this fellow he is you know very ambitious look inside was he right if there is an iota of truth work upon it and if there is no truth just forget about him second if somebody you know there is a practical thing like car chori karke bhag gaya koi so obviously you'll go to police and report and you know find about it or process through the insurance but important thing is not to let your inner consciousness be constantly caught in the grip of that feverish agitation and storm do what you have to do you have to do but it should should not allow because this is the goal this clarity if i lose this light and calm if i lose it's a very expensive loss that's why the mother says that peace is an invaluable treasure faith is an invaluable treasure resist all temptation to lose it these are temptation nalli das one example walking on the road and suddenly somebody caught hold of him and said what nalli you think you are a great sadhak and you know you you this that 15 20 minutes kept insulting throwing hips nalli das is listening to him listening to him after 20 minutes when he pauses a little he said hoy gelo over can i go now and walks away this one approach so a lot of things we don't have to really but there are certain places where you have to act act as if in contravention to as shubhendu says probably i'll catch hold of the man who is tearing the dress because it's too early or maybe i 
treasure the dress obviously you'll do it but it should not be done with a sense of agitation anxiety fear grief these have to go if we can clear and obviously in the first go it will not go and when the deed is done then not to hold it in our hearts that oh this fellow sometimes for 10 years 20 years we hold it in our hearts and it's sad you know even in shurubindo circles and glad you brought it up because i was thinking about i was feeling a different kind of a pain not a personal pain but in the context of you know new york city and let me share it you know this place has so many devotees of mother and shubindo there are centers there are study circles and yet there is a division so if there is one program one place others won't go what are we talking about practicing shubindo's yoga yes so 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 far are kuch nahi ho raha hai bhagwan ka naam liya ja raha hai iska anand hai it is said about hanuman ji that wherever ram katha is going on he goes and sits there he doesn't bother whether he is sinner or there even in lanka he'll go and find a vibhishna and sit in his kutia and listen we can't even go from one study circle to another one center to another simply because we have brought a wall this is sad so we have to break these barriers get past we are talking about going beyond time space causality let's break these simple barriers which are well within our reach and yet we have them so we are very very far and that's why shobindo what consciousness is wanting us to rise wherever one is talking about divine mother it doesn't matter it's a joy it's a delight it's not about you know what the understanding will come or this or that person it's irrelevant in odisha if you go i am just giving you an example it was an eye opener rumbling experience first time when i went to odisha i was very hesitant i asked them i said see i i can't speak oriya he said doesn't matter you speak in hindi or english okay so i thought maybe they understand so i spoke with a combination of english and hindi almost a thousand persons had come it was not only me many persons were there so i asked uh, toward the end you know did uh, did they really know so no no they don't know so i asked then some of the people whom i met they were so full of love so full of sweetness and they are just trying to get to me and talk in odia and all that so i was you know i said uh, with you know they do understand some hindi but not like a fluent flow of hindi or leave aside english they can understand a little bit of hindi if you talk to them many of them so they, then i came to know a very humbling truth they didn't come either for the speaker or for the subject they came because in mother's place somebody came to talk about mother from mother's place nothing else is needed all the rest is irrelevant this is yoga <laughs> it's an humbling experience and so many places wherever you go you realize the same thing that look they come for the love of the mother for the joy of the mother they are not interested in you know, complicated concepts and you know how much i am able to grasp understand this speaker is good that person is bad it's not relevant it's the joy of sharing the mother's delight and light that's all that is important 
and when we share it it increases manifold so these are crude things we can obviously get rid of them other things will come later yeah Yeah, obviously there is something like a destiny. Now, destiny is a um, end result of a complex play of forces. And in this play of forces, my deeds, my thoughts, feelings also play a part, but not the only part. So, any event, let us say that, let's take a physical example. If I push a ball from here, I have set it into motion to go in a certain direction, reach a certain spot. But there are many players who are waiting. So before it reaches you, it may hit Mahinder and Mahinder may hit it back at me. <laughs> or Arjun may get excited and push the ball towards his side. It's a complex play and then it, you know, goes and eventually, oh, I had intended for Rohan, so eventually it reaches it. at. So in time and space, it's a complex play. But what is it behind the play? There is an intent and that intent is only to help us grow towards this unity and in this consciousness of unity. Why? Because when we grow in the consciousness of unity, consciousness of unity, then all the forces automatically gets, get aligned because they are all eventually are servants and slaves of the oneself. But as long as we don't grow into the consciousness of unity and try to manipulate some forces like the occultists and the tantrics do, and leave out the others, it will always remain a mixed affair. When people ask Shurabindo that, you know, or rather mother, about miracles, he said, what people normally do as miracles, they are full of mixed vital stuff. And therefore, we don't deal with them, because we have to invariably use certain forces of falsehood, bring, in, bring them into play. But when you live in the consciousness of self, then life becomes a miracle. It's like destiny... It's like a smooth sailing because now you have gone behind the mask. So it's a play of forces through which event and circumstances appear before our eyes. That's all. The reactions of good and bad destiny are my own. They are not what destiny intends. If a teacher tells me to do push-ups thousand times, I may say how cruel the teacher is. He has punished me. Or I may say, okay, I have got a chance to grow my muscles. Maybe the teacher has foreseen me some great ability to become a Hercules. They are my reactions. But what is the fact that I am being called upon to do push-ups thousand times? So, when we say good destiny and bad destiny, it's a purely reaction of the ego which dwells with duality. It wants certain things, calls them good. And believes God or whatever, God the judge or Chitragupta or whoever is the guy sitting behind supercomputer up there, is when he is pleased with me, he gives me a good destiny. Means thereby house and car and obedient children and you know stuff like that. Or I may take it the other way that you know if none of these are there, it's a bad destiny. But destiny is not concerned with these things. Destiny will keep presenting events and circumstances to help us see behind the mask, to grow into the consciousness of the one, to embrace the totality of creation. 
the day we understand the plan and the play then the fear goes away then it's not good and bad it's a challenge thrown at me how i navigate through it that will lead me to the next step it's like a computer game so destiny is just busy doing that these forces are constantly arranging events and circumstances challenging my limits and what are they actually doing they are trying to help me step out of my comfort zone through the aspect of the otherness of self and if you look at it like that it's wonderful it's a very good game and it serves its purpose very well but we get unfortunately lost into good fortune bad fortune reward and punishment destiny has nothing to do with that it's a play of force in the universe perhaps it's not even bothered about the individual soul there are circumstances in this world play you will encounter how you navigate is your choice and that's what is given to us that is the law of karma it's an evolutionary law the law of learning and evolving and growing towards the consciousness of unity so the moment something happens contrary to my expectation i have a chance to call it misfortune and feel unhappy about it or i have a chance to say well this is another way that the divine is playing with me there is a nice nice little story of the mughal empress whose chinese mirror was broken and the maid servant was very afraid and she is saying oh this mirror is broken so bad and the empress says very good the object of vanity is broken so we can look at the same event and grow if we don't grow the event will keep repeating again it will come again it will come till we have finally mastered the inner mastery has to be there and when we master it then it becomes really meaningless so this is the law of karma it's a learning and growth rather but reward and punishment is our additions to it as i said the teacher is neither rewarding nor punishing he is just doing a job to helping us learn similarly the mother withholds something or gives something out of love but we say good mama bad mama that's our reaction in ignorance so in ignorance the law of karma has been created as if god is a judge who is busy rewarding and punishment punishing us or condemning us or lifting us but in the light of knowledge we say he only loves as shivendra says in one of his aphorism that if god created hell it must be a shortcut to heaven for verily he loves so even there there is a wisdom that operates so there is law of karma is essentially an evolutionary law yeah yeah please but he first that's why that's a very interesting question so that's why i always say that in the mahabharata there are two things one is the war and the other is the principle behind it i am sure sri krishna knew that if only the war takes place and not the gita people will misinterpret my actions and therefore he gave the gita so gita is the principle and the war is the action so in the gita he tells arjuna what is the consciousness in which he has to fight and why he has to fight and that is the take home point for all of us yes we may be called upon to fight sometimes say a soldier who is defending his country he can rise in the consciousness of the one self and fight 
without hating, without getting into that. You know, this is the this is a very interesting point. It touches upon many aspects. Of course, in the actual Mahabharata, war was the last resort. Krishna tried till the end to stave off a war. Till the very end, he goes as Shanti Dut. So that is the factual part. He did not. He, if he was really a war mongering person, as many people say, he should have right then and there when Bhima and Arjuna's blood was boiling, said, "Come, I will join the Yadav." Because by then, even uh, there was no choice that he will not lift up a shastra, etc. He should have said, "All, all right." I will come with my Yadava army. Me and Balram and you guys are enough to finish them off. And it was a fact that nobody could have stood before the Yadava army at that point of time. Imagine with Krishna, Balram and all these heroes on one side when Draupadi is humiliated. But he doesn't do that. That is the beauty of the Mahabharata war. It's the last resort when all attempts to conciliate fail. Then war is to be fought. But even there, Krishna is so careful. He says, Arjuna, fight because you have to fight now. But neither withdraw out of Ragdvesh, he is withdrawing out of Moha, nor fight under the state of Moha or a clouded state of consciousness. You have to fight. It's a gory battle. Do it with this. So I was coming back to this story about the soldiers on the battlefield. Some of us may know it. Some of us may not know because... uh, being from the Air Force background and many friends in the infantry, etc. You know the difference between terrorists and the... I am talking right now about the Indian Army. I don't know about other armies. Indian Army. There is a real incident where... And there are many such incidents where terrorists not only captured a Jawan or even an army officer. And what a vicious consciousness. They didn't just kill the person. They chopped the body put it in sacks and threw it in the Indian camp to just show the, you know, the kind of hatred or that. This is a consciousness which cannot even be given a name. Now the first reaction of the Indian soldiers is actually to go and invade, done with it. it that's how they, you know, it, in that war field. Uh, you know, that's why these people who are human, uh, this uh, watch. They don't understand the real thing. But I am telling you a real story and this is what happens in all the units. The commander will tell them, no, you can't behave as the terrorist too. You have a code of honor. You are, they don't use the word Kshatriya, but you are soldiers, not terrorists. You can't get into that consciousness. And he allows that to settle down. And then they form a plan. They of course attack and eventually they capture or kill. But they don't do this kind of a thing. So this is the, sometimes we are called upon. We are called upon to save a nation from disaster. We have to fight. It is not a fight where, like in Vivekji's case, it's not just an individual issue. Individual issue then it should have been fought long back. But a moment comes when, A whole nation's destiny is at stake and a war has to be fought. It is inevitable. In fact, it has been literally thrust upon the Pandavas. They have no place. The only choice was they could live as, you know, son-in-law of that, uh, what was that, Uttara's Virat. Virat. That was the only way. Or Drupad Desh. They had no other way. Now, that's not a kind of life they should be leading. 
So war is thrust upon them and when it is thrust upon them, then they fight. Now even there Krishna takes care. Arjuna, you have to fight but be clear in your consciousness. Offer it to me and know why you are fighting. It's not an individual battle that you are you know, settling down but something greater. And he takes that Kshatriya aspect and pushes it. And even then Shurabindo says something very interesting in essays on the Gita. He says the Gita was given to a uh, you know, an average man who is dynamic and kinetic by nature. It is not for those who have already reached a point where they want to go to a next level. Not to everybody will it be given. Sri Krishna did not tell Vidur, for example, that you must fight. So, that's how one has to look at it. And it was obviously a world action. Like Shurbindo who speaks about, you know, they like created an ashram where people withdraw from that kind of an ordinary engagement with life and try to engage with a deeper view. And yet in the Second World War, it was such an exigency that Shurbindo, some of the disciples and their children got recruited in the Second World War to fight for the Elis because it's an exigency of time. That's all that the Mahabharata War is. It's not that this is a way of life one has to adopt. And that's why it's a great, great thing that happened that he also gave the Gita. Otherwise, Sri Krishna Charitra would be misunderstood. The Gita does not advocate war. The Gita speaks about what are the qualities of the Devas. In them it says Ahinsa, Shama, all these qualities he says. But there is a time when it is put upon you then fight with this clear consciousness. He doesn't advocate it as a way of life. That's what, so for Vidur's consciousness, it was not the right thing to get into that. So it's not that everybody, Krishna is advocating that, you know, you have to fight a Dharma Yudh. You know, otherwise many people take it like, you know, Krishna said, fight for truth, not knowing what really is truth and what is right. Most of us start confusing it with our personal truths and personal rights. That is a question somebody asked mother. It is said, truth always triumphs, satyamev jayate. But we don't see it in our life. There are good people who suffer and then the mother first laughs and says, everybody has a good opinion of himself. (laughs) That he is good and right. Secondly, truth is not a legal truth. Krishna did not tell them to fight because their legal land of Khandavprast turned into Indraprast was snatched away by Duryodhana. That was bad, but he didn't say fight for that. But when effort to get even a small bit of land where they could start a new creation was denied, then they had to fight. So this is where the whole consciousness is very different. Whereas Vidur, Vidur is in a different state of consciousness. Vidur does not want to, he is called upon to side with the Korvas. He refuses, he is neutral, he is a Mahatma. He had a choice to put himself on the side of the Pandavas, but he says no. Why? Because on one side he would do something which would be contrary to, at that point of time, a dharma which he is called, he should have fought from the side of the Korvas. And secondly, he very well knew that there is no question but victory is going to be on this side. So he followed another law of being which is also good, evolutionary law of being. But supposing Bhishma said, I am not going to fight, Krishna wouldn't have incited him, yes, yes, you must fight because he would have said, good, thank you. That's it. End of the story. 
so it's not a blind plunging into destruction and war and you know very often the gita is regarded as that it's to rise to a consciousness beyond good and evil beyond violence and non violence shubhendra makes it clear gita is not a gospel of violence it is not a gospel of non violence it is a gospel of arising to the highest self and even if you are called upon to do the most difficult of actions most contrary to spiritual life yet you can turn it into ascending so if you can do that then obviously everyday life it's much more easier to do it that's and this is the perspective of the mahabharata mahabharata war was the end result of a great uh, series of negotiations all of them failed and broke down that's how the war took place yeah renunciation but first let me just you know because suddenly i think about the other aspects of krishna see any of the wars if you see krishna's battles sishupal he kills end result of a series of not just insults but plenty of things jarasand who was sacrificing kings and princes for the sake of his personal you know aggrandizement he gets him killed without as much as letting a single soldier shed his blood kalyavan he gets him killed without again letting a soldier bleed jarasand himself he flees run shod now look at krishna's tremendous the only proper war that krishna has really fought is with narkasur where he who was narkasur a man who has taken 16000 women captive whose way of life is pleasure and enjoyment and everything and he is the only person where krishna really fights a proper war and yet who is krishna it is said during that time that of all the warriors in aryavarth he was the greatest of warriors because he could ride a chariot that's how his personality is described you know if one has to introduce on a big screen cinema he would be should be introduced like this one of the ways he could be introduced he could ride a chariot pulling the reins himself with four horses and while he is uh, running the chariot he could yet shoot an arrow accurately on target which is moving that's how krishna's prowess is described and yet he doesn't engage into any meaningless war so krishna basic personality is sweet and loving and compassionate and full of delight that's what he is but at the same time he doesn't shrink from battle if he is called upon to because this is the aryan way of life if somebody throws a challenge and he's obviously doing something which is totally contrary to you know molesting a woman for example so then you have to fight but even there as he says hate the sin but not the sinner that's his consciousness exactly that's what it's not at all about the fight that's what i'm saying it's a consciousness which krishna teaches us to rise and it's the beauty is that it is given before the war because otherwise the whole message of mahabharata could be misunderstood as indeed it is misunderstood 
plenty of people justify all kinds of fights and quarrel quoting poor krishna though he said you read the gita don't see this <laughs> this is an exigency how many he will explain that you know what all happened see how much forgiveness he has taught the pandavas otherwise one cause was enough losing the game of dice or even division of kandava prasth that was a gross injustice done to them and he should have said oh how dare they do it when legally you are the higher go and fight he didn't say any of those things if you look at krishna and the beauty of krishna is he is powerful and strong and mighty and yet he teaches compassion and love and sweetness but yes he is an aryan he has come to uphold the aryan dharma look at rama same thing people talk about ramayana and you know they often paint oh in indian myths fight when does rama fight till the end he sends angad as a you know doot and what does angad angad tell ravana you know my lord is very compassionate just return janki he will forgive you he will not hold it against you but war is thrust now when war is thrust he doesn't shrink from the battle he doesn't initiate a war a causeless senseless destruction as terrorist and many other do he doesn't do that and that's the beauty of india and i feel very proud about it that's a country which has never invaded any country because that's not the way of life to invade and annex but if it is thrust upon you defend don't uh, indulge in you know nehruvian bye bye you have to defend be strong in the defense be mighty whether you live or die fall nobly or conquer heroically this is the message not shrink cowardly and start talking of sanyas at a wrong time <laughs> that's not the time to take sanyas if sanyas renunciation renounce the ego self which dies suffers groans renounce it that's what we were read, reading in baji prabhu so true renunciation in a sense is renunciation of ego and desire it does not hide itself behind ostentatious dresses and big lectures and you know show of renunciation it's not that at all krishna is a renunciate and he rules a kingdom what kind of ruler he is he again kills kansa without shedding a blood look at krishna's strategy and whom does he give the kingdom to the rightful heir his own father whom does uh, rama give the kingdom after the victory to vibhishna this is the aryan way of battle not for personal victory oh now i have won it's mine vibhishna sorry so sorry you are under me forget about it and vibhishna would have been very happy yes because he loved rama you are the lord he kills bali whom does he give the kingdom to sugreeve this is the way of the aryan dharma even in battle there is that and shubindu speaks about it in the aryan whoever he conquers he ennobles them and does not diminish and crush them under the feet look at the other side an asuric conquest alexander conquers and appropriates or for example the british conquering and appropriate looting and plundering what do they get back in return 
the Gita, the Vedas. India gave that. That's how, you know, Gita found its way across the shores. This is the Aryan way of life, which Sri Krishna has. And it requires tremendous inner renunciation. And talking of renunciation, there is a very beautiful chapter in the synthesis. And I don't have all that right now. And if you uh, Google search by then, uh, <laughs> not in the mobile, please, but in that uh, iPad, if possible, there is a chapter on renunciation. And it reveals the, or if you bring the synthesis, I will immediately you know, open it. You know, because I want to read that passage. It's very, very beautiful and powerful and engaging. Not just, you know, uh, give my own words. But essentially it is the renunciation of the ego self and the desire, which is an inner thing. That's why Sri Krishna talks about Tyaga rather than Sannyasa. Yeah. No, this is in two volumes. I, uh, volume 2 you have brought, right? You see, uh, you will have the other volume also. Yeah, yeah, it will be in the other volume, volume 1, sorry. Wow, this is Arjuna. Got it. Wow, I like it. Done, Arjuna has done it. Actually, this whole chapter is wonderful. So I, I, I was, you know, just wondering which one to read and which one not to read. But let me read which directly connects also with the Gita because, you know, we are at it. So we are on page 331. Again, Sri brings us to the root of the problem. But the center of all resistance is egoism. And this we must pursue into every covert and disguise and drag it out and slay it. For its disguises are endless. And it will cling to every shred of possible self-concealment. So what are the disguises of the ego? We know the crude disguises. But look at some of the subtle disguises. Altruism. And indifference are often its most effective disguises. Look, Shurabindo is using two very contrary. Altruism is one disguise. I am doing good for others, helping humanity. One disguise of egoism. Indifference. I don't care about humanity. Only God. Another disguise. Look how subtle these are. 
so draped it will not boldly in the face of the divine spies who are oh so um, so draped it will riot boldly in the very face of the divine spies who are missioned to hunt it out here the formula of the supreme knowledge comes to our help we have nothing to do in our essential standpoint with these distinction for there is no i nor nor thou but only one divine self equal in all embodiments equal in the individual and the group and to realize that to express that to serve them to fulfill that is all that matters then look how he goes a few lines below if the realization fulfillment service of the one self demands from us an action that seems to others self service or self assertion in the egoistic sense or seems egoistic enjoyment and self indulgence that action we must do it may look to others we are not here to please others or to give a goody impression saintliness this is not what we are here to do trying to create an impression on others this is mother says if you want to get rid of ego the one way is don't try to please either yourself or others try to please only the divine how beautiful this is that action we must do we must be governed by the guide within rather than by the opinions of men look at krishna again he knew what people will think of him and he could have tried to be very saintly and holy governed by people's opinions and said look i am a brahman knower what will people say i am telling arjuna to fight no he did not think of that when shurbindo put his some money in the war fund in favor of the elis people told him why are you doing it you have fought against the british and he says it's not because of that it's a vision of the truth that inspires so look at this the influence of the environment works often with great subtlety or look at he is hunting out the ego from every disguise we prefer and put on almost unconsciously the garb which will look best in the eye that regards us from outside and we allow a veil to drop over the eye within we are impelled to drape ourselves in the vow of poverty in the garb of service or in outward proofs of indifference and renunciation and a spotless sainthood because that is what tradition and opinion demand of us and so we can make best an impression on our environment and this is called in the spiritual parlance show and sham this what hanuman as a baby was busy doing he would go and pull every false rishi's beard and shake him off that's why he was ready to take on ravana because he was prepared like that so all these garbs but all this is vanity and delusion we may be called upon to assume these things for that may be the uniform of our service but equally it may not the eye of man outside matters nothing the eye within is all 
So you see his renunciation, how subtle it can be. Unconsciously, we try to impress others. And look good, look saintly. But this is not renunciation. We see in the teaching of the Gita, how subtle a thing is the freedom from egoism which is demanded. Arjuna is driven to fight by the egoism of strength, the egoism of the Kshatriya. He is turned from the battle by the contrary egoism of weakness, the shrinking, the spirit of disgust, the false pity that overcomes the mind, the nervous being and the senses, not that divine compassion which strengthens the arm and clarifies the knowledge. If he was like a Buddha, Sri Krishna would not have told him to fight. Shobindo says that in essays on the Gita. But he is not wanting to withdraw because of that. Oh, they are my people. What will happen to the women? They will all become, you know, confused. My Bhishma, my Dronacharya. He never felt all this in other battles. So both were states of egoism. But this weakness comes garbed in renun- as renunciation, as virtue. Quote, Arjuna, better the life of the beggar than to taste these blood-stained enjoyments. I desire not the rule of all the earth. No, not the kingdom of the gods. Arjuna, unquote. How foolish of the teacher we might say not to confirm this mood. To lose this sublime chance of adding one more great soul to the army of sannyasins. Look, Shirovindo's subtle sense of humor even in book like Synthesis. It's not only when he replies to Niroda. He is telling, oh, poor teacher, he one more sannyasis in the army of sannyasis he could have got. One more shining example before the world of a holy renunciation. But the guide sees otherwise. The guide who is not to be deceived by words. This is weakness and delusion and egoism that speak in thee. Behold the self. Open thy eyes to the knowledge. Purify thy soul of egoism. And afterwards, fight, conquer, enjoy will the kingdom. First state of consciousness clears. Or to take another example from ancient Indian tradition, it was egoism, it would seem, that drove Rama, the avatar, to raise an army and destroy a nation in order to recover his wife from the king of Lanka. But would it have been a lesser egoism to drape himself in indifference and misusing the formal terms of the knowledge to say, look how knowledge, sastra can be so dangerous. The word of the scripture is so much liable to misuse. Quote, I have no wife, no enemy, no desire. These are illusions of the senses. Let me cultivate the Brahman knowledge and let Ravana do what he will with the daughter of Janak. But Ramayana is very subtle, very profound. That's why it has endured. The criterion is within, as the Gita in- insists. It is to have the soul free from craving and attachment. But free from the attachment to inaction, as well as from the egoistic impulse to action. 
free from attachment to the forms of virtue as well as from the attraction to sin. It is to be rid of I-ness and minus, so as to live in the oneself and act in the oneself. To reject the egoism of refusing to work through the individual center of the universal being. As well as the egoism of serving the individual mind and life and body to the exclusion of others. This is the great teaching of the Gita. This is what Sri wants us to live. Even seeking after mukti is an egoism. And Sri says that one is not ready for the highest truth if one is not ready to discard this subtlest of all egoism. My mukti. While God suffers here upon earth, struggling to bring light. That's why in Bhagavad there is a prayer. Na kamaye moksham. I desire not liberation nor salvation. I seek to be born a thousand times to serve thee here upon earth. This is the great liberation. Any other question? Ah, please. Just, uh, I was thinking about this uh, uh, Monday. So, recently, Supreme Court turning uh, out regarding uh, same-sex marriage. So, in uh, gay and lesbian. So, this kind of love, is it called a love? Okay, yeah, yeah, got it. Good question. And I am glad these kind of questions we are asking. It's really good. Otherwise, we only ask very high profound questions. Yeah, it's a very good question. What is could be the spiritual view of gay marriages? I believe if there is one self, it is a self beyond the distinctions of gender. And love, really, if it is love, is not just an attraction of two opposite sexes. So, if there is true love, if, it doesn't matter whether it's a gay love or an ungay love. I don't know what is the other name. Straight. 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 <laughs> <laughs> Got it. <laughs> if there is true love, and if it is not true love, then it doesn't matter again whether it's a gay love or a straight love. The point is not about the same gender or another gender. The point is how sublime that impulse to love is. And that only in the sincerity of a heart one may know. It may be the same gender, but it may be a love built of the fabric of sacrifice, not drawn towards just a sexual impulse. And I'm sure there would be probably, you know, a couple of gays at least, among the thousands who are moving around, who may be experiencing that. I don't know. And if they are experiencing that, it's perfectly fine. Equally, there are tens of thousands among straight whose love is nothing but a craving of the senses. It is natural. But from the divine point of view, both are like two varieties of ants <laughs> struggling for their rights. 
So wherever there is truth and light and love and sacrifice, it is worthy of respect. Doesn't matter whether it's this gender or that gender. But wherever it is not, it is the same ordinary human consciousness. As to the legality, I am, you know, I always feel a bit surprised. Where you love truly, then there is only one thing that matters and it is the joy of self-giving. So legality is a totally different thing. It is based on my rights with regard to marriage. The whole legal system is steeped in still in that falsehood. When mother was asked to speak about the rights of love, somebody said, it's my right because I love. Mother said, the only right of love is the right of self-giving. If you love someone, give yourself. Otherwise, don't call it love. She was not in favor of women cooking for men. Shobindo devotees. Hope listening. <laughs> she said that. Are they slaves? She uses. We were talking about getting rid of, you know, sometime back mindsets. So she says, are they slaves? Why should women cook for men? Are they slaves? So you see, it's it's to say that straight is better and gay is bad, it's simply f- forgetting the real issue. Legally, it's okay. It's a different thing. You know, people fight for their rights and I, I believe that in that case, people have the basic freedom to choose about their life and let them, you know, in any case, religious curbs on the human growth have not done much good. So if people want to lead a life in a certain way, even if they believe it's disastrous, so long as it's a personal disaster, (laughs) it's all right. But if the disaster is going to hurt the society at large, then it's a different thing. So if somebody is obviously manufacturing nukes and wants to bomb others, you have to stop him by law or whatever way. But if they want to lead a certain way of life, it may appear in my view, in my view or somebody else's view, bad thing. Or how does it matter? It's an experience. There are many. Also, I may say there are many men trapped in a woman's bodies. At least the gays or lesbians I have seen in my life, they have come to me. Either you know, I have seen both in religious and secular things. I have seen even among some Sri Aurobindo devotees, somebody whom. Uh, I met and even there was a famous instance of course here itself but that apart so I have seen them that like um, you know it, it at the end of the day it doesn't matter I have seen that they were really uh, some of them were men trapped in women's body and I have also seen women trapped in men's bodies the consciousness was feminine so at one level if masculine and feminine are merely a question of physicality or psychologically <coughs> So if we take the psychological dimension of it, then, you know, gay marriages can be understood. Because masculinity and femininity are connected more to the psychological makeup than to the actual physical constitution. And I have seen this really in so many instances. So I suppose it's okay. I mean, if they want to lead, if they feel they are comfortable and happy about it, I mean, it's okay. They will get their own experience. They are not disturbing anybody else. As long as they don't make a fetish out of it or think it is something very great I am doing. So it's okay. <laughs> That's how I look at it. It's not it may be. 
All the ego-bound life is a perversion. It's unnatural. That's what I would say. I won't use the word perversion. But in human beings itself, the sense of naturalness is lost. For example, if we take the extension, very often this logic of perversion is given that they are doing something which no other species does. But human beings do many such things which no other species does. <laughs> Accumulate wealth, for instance. Passing on money to the progeny. No other species does these things. In fact, all species feed the young when they are babies and then they tell them to go out and hunt for themselves. So human beings, because of the mind, it's not only the gay and the lesbians, but humanity as a race, because of the mind and its ignorance, is steeped in very many kinds of perversity. It has cut off the straight and integral truth into bits and parts and created perversity. The biggest perversity is I-ness and minus, which fortunately animals don't, don't indulge in. So, yes, if you ask me, but this is not the only perversity. Then we have to free ourselves of many perversities as a society. I am saying from a yogic perspective, not from a human, moral, religious standpoint, which is a different thing and that's not a standpoint I am adopting. Experience, feel, huh? Feel, experience, and scientifically, now apparently proven that they do, and and how is it a performance? No, that's exactly. So, besides, even in the physical, see, in almost all instances of love, I am sure you know most of us by now are aware that the physical attraction is very often only a first hook. It wears off. People don't live together because they are only uh, bothered about physical. There is a deeper soul of love, an emotional attachment, a sense of mental companionship, a sharing of interest. That's what love is about. Sometimes, very often at a young age, it may take a physical form and a hook of nature to put two people together. The same would apply in a gay or lesbian marriages. Like they may be initially, because of whatever reasons, they are physically drawn to what in our view may be, but eventually love will get a chance to either graduate and rise to higher levels or remain in the mud. And it may happen to either. So I suppose even if we take that whatever physical aspect is there, it's a very initial thing. In most people, it's very soon transcended because love seeks to grow. And if we don't allow it to grow, it will really degenerate. People whose love is purely based on physical, very often, you know, turn from one to another because it's just a craving of the protoplasm, as Shurabinda puts it. But there is a greater love, a higher love, a deeper love. And everybody has a chance if the vibration of love has manifested, it will go beyond the body and the physicality. And rightly, I mean, how does it matter? But I was using the word perversity in the sense that people say it is unnatural. You know, there was a statement from certain, you know, religious this thing it's a perversion because animals don't indulge in it now if we use that logic then there are many things animals don't indulge in which we human beings indulge in which includes even dressing yeah so you know which includes putting on a dress we can't call it a perversion you know we feel ashamed animals don't feel ashamed so that logic doesn't apply I was in fact listening to one of the famous so called Barkhadat interview I am not naming the person. It's a perversion because it's unnatural. And, you know, 
But if you take it unnatural because of the animal logic, but if you say from human beings they don't do, then that is not true. Because all through humanity, from the farthest times till today, there have always been a certain percentage of human beings who have fallen out of the mainstream spectrum and have been gay. They never talked about it as gay. It's well known. It's not something new that it is happening in a new country or a new... It's just that they are beginning to raise a voice and they want legal rights, I don't know, whatever. But there have always been people who have, you know, been men, men living together. It's nothing new about it. Yes, famous example of Shikhandini. Exactly. And thanks for reminding. Because it's a woman in a man's body. We don't know whom she married. Maybe she felt like a, you know, gay, but probably, you know, for the divine consciousness, it really doesn't matter. These things may be very important for us, but for the divine, it doesn't matter. Even, a, you know, as the, from the divine point of view, a, a woman sleeping with many men, it doesn't matter. There are stories like that. The famous story of Sri Ramakrishna where, you know, he says, there are this, a holy man and a, um, you know, and a prostitute, they go together. They die together and, you know, the holy man is sent to uh, hell and the prostitute to heaven. This this real story told by Sri Ramakrishna and, you know, mother has told something very similar in her own way. So... Uh, you know, he's, the holy man says there is surely some miscalculation. I can understand the <laughs> prostitute going to heaven. But how can a holy man like me go to hell? Please check your computer records. Some virus has crept in. So St. Peter says, no, this is a virus free, you know. Firewall protection. So what is the secret? He says, very simple. You were a holy man sitting right across the, the house of this lady. So every time that a man went to this lady's house, you said, ah, 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 chi, 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 chi. So horrible woman, this is such a sinner, such a sinner. He said, okay, I did something wrong, but how can you justify her action? He says, every time a man slept with her, she said, ah, Krishna, I just can't do anything, but this, the only thing I have is my body through which I get my livelihood. But Lord, you know my situation and you know this world. Ultimately, I give myself to Krishna, inhabit this body with which I am spending this night. And she would pray to Krishna and therefore she was freed. And the Gita says that he who takes my name, even if she be a Vaishya or tied with a thousand bonds or the lowest of sinner, he should be regarded as a saint. This is the Gita's teaching. The same thing we find in the Bible. So, this, our idea of, you know, good and bad are very, very uh, living in. Mother spoke about it and she said that, you know, there was a lady in the ashram and uh, people used to regard her very much and then uh, she started living in with a man. And suddenly people started saying, oh, this lady, you know, this, so bad, so bad. Uh, so, she says, when these things happen outside, I understand but when they happen in the ashram, I am shocked. You know, shocked by whom? Not the lady, but by the people's reaction. And then mother says that if you are still tied to these social norms and frames, 
you are not ready even to enter and take the first step into the spiritual life. Forget about supramental. That's it. There's so many instances where you know all these ideas are broken. Shobindo speaks about it. Well, there was a point of time in evening talks, he says, that many of these things are purely cultural. I mean, uh, there is a deeper aspect which I'll come to. But purely from the surface of it, polyandry in certain areas of, uh, you know, the country and earth and in certain ages was an accepted thing. Even now, if you go to Manipur and other places, polyandry is a, is a practice. They don't regard it as evil. Of course, polygamy we know, you know. But even we know rishis, they, they had, you know, two wives. Famous example is of Yagnaval who... Uh, wrote the Ishupanishad, had Maitre and Katyayani as his wives. Their names are documented and Gargi as his friend. They were not bound by these, you know, conventional ideas. But Draupadi's story has many other ramifications. And one of them I read very beautifully in, uh, you know, just as Shurvindu has written, Dialogues of the Dead. So, one of them is Draupadi and Savitri. So, Draupadi and Savitri both meet in, you know, in that uh, beyond. And Savitri says that I don't understand why you are regarded as a holy and sacred woman whereas uh, uh, you had five husbands. So, Drobdi says, so? So, she says, no. That means um, you must have, uh, you know, she asks about love. He said, well, the truth is I had five husbands but I loved only one. So, then again Savitri catches her. Says in that case you were unequal. You are supposed to love only all of them equally. If you married, you should love them equally and this is the promise you had. So you broke your promise, therefore you can't be sacred. He says, no, I loved all the Pandava brothers equally. She says, what is this mystery? You say you loved one only and you loved all the Pandava brothers equally. She says, actually I loved only Krishna. This is also another and it's a fact in Mahabharata that Draupadi actually loved only Krishna. She never married him. She wanted to marry him, but Krishna never married her. This is a historical fact. And all her life, she loved Krishna and listened to whatever he said. Historically, she was the avatar of Mahakali. Krishna and Kali from the higher world came here as Krishna and Draupadi. She was Kali, incarnate. So, I mean, in our myths, there is so much wideness. Look at Shiva. Another example, Mahadev comes. Shiva is the greatest renunciate. You know, he is sworn as the Tapasvi. Shiva is not once married, but twice married. How do we understand this? Yeah. No, I mean, the myth, the legend is there. He married Sati and then he married Parvati. This is well known. Whereas Ganga loved him and she is his consort. These are famous poets, even uh, humorous poetry on this. That, you know, uh, how do you manage being a fakir? <laughs> so, ultimately, it is an inner thing. You know, if you are freed from ego and desire, we look at the world with our eyes. That, you know, oh, Draupadi must have all, they must have, you know, like, I remember is this, this, in India, in a certain time, there used to be what is, what I have labeled as Mohalla mentality. Mohalla mentality. Mohalla is, you know, you know what is Mohalla? Mohalla is a street mentality. Yeah. What's what's a good one? That's a good one. So what happens is that if a young boy and a young girl 
were seen even talking to each other oh you know you know you know what is happening you know what is happening what is happening <laughs> nothing is happening but the wild fire will spread so much that at the end of the day they will say you know she has got pregnant because they can't think of anything else okay this is adolescent he is feeling a brush of emotions it's fine i mean it's natural he can purify it yes there is a danger all that is fine but immediately as if there is a sin and this sense of sin was associated so much i'm sure i mean you may have experienced or seen it but i have seen it that if you ever walked outside holding the hand of your wife in your hand it was something just not done you can't do that she's your wife but you can't you can't just sit by her side in a public gathering now this is because we have reduced the you know the level of the beauty of this relationship to simply a physical something and this i feel because you know the consciousness had fallen so low that it was seeing only this but if we go back to the age of the ancient bharata the land bharat is named after a out of wedlock child bharat is an out of wedlock child look at satyakam story he goes and tells jabali that look you know i am relating this story just to you know free our minds of many conceptions so satyakam goes for enrollment to a school and the rishi says uh, i don't know you only brahmins are enrolled here get the name of your father only brahmins and kshatriyas so he goes and says mama tell me who is my dad she says i don't know who your dad is i was working with many men's house this is a story from the upanishad i don't know maybe i can't be sure who your dad is but i am your mom for sure <laughs> so she goes and narrates it verbatim story from the upanishad one of the jewel stories of the upanishad narrates verbatim my mom says i don't know who your dad is but i am your mom for sure what does this rishi says a woman who can speak like this is of the highest order and enrolls him so basically if we really go back to the heydays of indian thought there was such wideness such strength because you know only somebody who is very wide compassionate strong can look at these things as nothing but the more narrow we are that you know we read ines minus and then we are crumpled so the age of draupadi and the age of you know uh, mahabharata and the ramayana are amazing you know the the stories that are woven in the fabric so draupadi is among them that she is with five women and yet pure because in her consciousness she is pure she has loved everybody with the same purity in her heart there was none else but krishna so she is ever liberated ever free and has the power to free and has the tapasya this is tapasya she did she could liberate a whole nation she was the occult cause of the decline of the kuru clan because she is so pure that's what draupadi is i think the modern mahabharata showed it also the new one She says, "I am so pure. Don't come near me. Tremendously pure." Yeah, please. Somebody asked the law of karma. Karma is don't do. In a higher way, do but don't do. Yeah, don't do but do. In action, in action. That is the highest law, highest possibility of karma. But you know, at our normal level, 
we are doing with the doership. But highest possibility is inaction in action. But we are talking here is not a normal level. We, yeah. We are talking is highest level. possibility. Any other? Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's a state of consciousness where you discover, step one, that you are not the doer but nature is doing, which is a fact. If you really look at morning to evening, everything that we are doing, nature and a play of forces. So when we step back from the multiple actions that are happening within us, we discover a silent consciousness, which is like a witness standing apart from the whole machinery of nature. And that is the first experience of being a non-doer. So if we can, to start with, deepen this consciousness, grow more and more, and then there are three levels at which egoism is trapped. First is the ego of the instrument, then the egoism of the worker, and then ultimately the, the final thing when we get rid of it, then we discover the master. So I am the doer is obviously a fallacy. You know, like an intelligent man, let's say, succeeds in an exam. So he says, I have succeeded. But he has not succeeded, he is intelligent, therefore he succeeded. So where did intelligent come from? Nature has given him. So a slight analysis shows us that, you know, when we take credit to ourselves, it is of no use because, you know, we are not the one who can really take the credit. And the same thing applies when we say, I am unworthy. I mean, it's nature. But the beauty is, if I can turn towards the Lord, all this can change. That is the other aspect which comes later. But to see in action, in action. Yes, Aditi, you have been waiting for long. Um, yes. You know, when you were talking about um, destiny before, like yesterday um, you mentioned that Mother said not to be bound by fate, right? So, what's the difference between fate and destiny? No, that is, uh, you know, different people use different terms. Fate comes from, as far as I remember, it's a Greek word, fetus, from that. Something which is fated. It is given to you. Destiny comes from the word that determinism. It is determined, already prefixed. So there are different words that people use, but essentially meaning the same thing, that everything that is happening in your life is already predecided. That's what it means. Your past actions is leading to the present. And there is some, some grain of truth in it, in the sense, my actions are part of the totality of the world play. That's why we must act, even when we know what's going to happen. Because they are part of the world play. But events and circumstances don't come based on this. The, the, the law is far more complex. They don't come either to torture us or punish us or, 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 or reward us. They come to help us grow through the ladder of being. So if we take it like, you know, get lost in the good and bad and good fortune, bad fortune, then we miss the real purpose of events and circumstances. Yes, Simant, you are reading something? No, I was thinking from... Yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah, sure, anything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If gay marriages are allowed, I'm sure everything is allowed. <laughs> uh, yeah. Vastu Shastriya. So, like any other science, it is a science. You know, like astrology is a science. 
so among the many forces a very good thing actually it it is uh, extending the same question that what are the forces which determine an event so among the forces we can divide them categorize them as material forces forces of material nature forces of occult nature forces generated by our psychological subjectivity and of course divine and spiritual forces so of course the highest forces have the highest ultimate rule but there are material forces which are also active which to an extent shape our destiny if i you know uh, sit in a plane which or you know drive a car uh, without brakes most likely i am going to meet with an accident because that's how it is so i have to ensure that the car is free and the brakes are there working well but at the same time if my consciousness is very high at that point of time even though there is an accident i may escape unhurt so that is complex way how destiny interact nevertheless the car meets with an accident because i didn't take care of the material forces similarly uh, among the material forces there are these five elements the you know earth prithvi prithvi jal agni vayu and akash so each of them have a certain configuration in space and time and there is a whole occult science which has studied this configuration and says that where what should be like it's very simple you know when we are entering and there is a lot of common sense to it also so it is often said you know we don't um, there is a place of agni now i use this analogy uh, at another level and it works very well now what is the place of agni um, of course the vastu shastris i have seen very often say it's the kitchen but actually you know uh, if you see the marriage custom so agni is at the center and husband and wife take these seven pheras around it now i use this to explain to some of the clients that uh, don't try to get in the center as if you are the master if the wife gets to the center and wants to be the boss or if the husband gets to the center or the mother in law or the father in law everything will get disrupted the central point has to be agni the fire of aspiration and the mother said that in her message on marriage that at the center burns a fire of aspiration keep that at the center and then join hands and move at you know through the journey of life so there has to be a place where there has to be a place which is the center now this center central point can be a meditation hall or an invocation place so we have to be careful where we are placing things because we are invoking those forces in the atmosphere at that place and some of these forces may not mix well or combine well so that's the whole purpose of vastu and these people have done that elaborate study but it should not be turned into an absolute truth i mean somebody living in the consciousness that sab bhumi gopal ki it will not matter but an average person is subject to every kind of determinism so this is one kind of determinism that's very true everything comes as a gift of grace but we can prepare ourselves because gift of grace may come in ways that we are not ready to receive it the gift of grace of the sense of one may come through a disobedient child <laughs> or a truant someone in our life 
So it's a gift of grace. That's why it's best to regard all things as gifts of grace. That this is happening because the Divine Mother wants me to grow. That's the best way. Where the heart is open to the Divine and everything it regards as coming as gifts. That's how I was giving this example of Mira. You know, she receives poison as a gift of grace. So you, if we take it like that, we grow into the consciousness of the One. But some effort is needed even to receive the gift of grace. People begin to complain when things happen in their life. And therefore they lose the tremendous opportunity to transcend the barriers of thoughts, of ideas, of opinions in which we are entrenched. We have to go beyond these. Because divine consciousness is very, very vast. Yes. And they start spreading negative energy. They have to learn their own way. So best is to leave them because they don't want to we have to focus on me growing past them. Because they if we try to do it uh, in fact I would say not some people, most people. And unfortunately very often when you have done some good then this grudge becomes, it's a very strange thing. Shubhinda notes it in one of the letters uh, and he quotes Ishwar Chand Vidyasagar. When somebody was very critical of him, he said, oh, but I have not done any good to him, why is he so critical of me? <laughs> so, it is so true and I have seen it so true that if you do some good, strangely, people pick up and hole and talk about it. But people are what they are and we should just leave them their path. They will learn, divine will take care. But if you try to calm them and appease them, very often it complicates things. Same thing. The past lingers in us. Let's, before we go to the theory as it is given to us, let's see the whole science behind it. Now, the past lingers it uh, lingers with us even in our one single lifetime. And exactly what Didi was saying that, you know, we had a grudge with somebody, that person has gone, possibly dead and gone, but the grudge is carrying on. So what is it doing? It's blocking my road to the future. It's locking a portion of energy like a knot. And what is it doing? It is constricting me, holding me back to a very narrow and small consciousness. So to that extent, it is maiming me and mutilating me. So we have to free ourselves from that. In the beginning, it comes like that. And the way we have to free it is to get past this smallness and narrowness into a larger sense. Some people try to forgive and all, but a simpler way is to live in the consciousness of the oneself. If we don't do it, this energy will pursue us. So even the same logic applies in the next life. Our past deeds are like groups. So we want to suddenly, there is a spiritual turn in our lives and we have lent our instruments to a certain kind of life. So it will haunt us unless there is a grace. So 
take another example that somebody who is drinking every day it's a way of life and when he wants to turn to take to a spiritual life he realizes that drinking is bad but it clings to him obstinately and prevents it has its consequences and the biggest conscious uh, consequence is not letting him advance so what does he do so there are two three things advised one is self effort purusharth so by purusharth you can dissolve the past karmas this is one thing written in scriptures as well as shurbindo says thought by meditation by constantly invoking the contrary energy the more beautiful peaceful energies we can get rid of this past formation or above all by grace so past karma whether they apply at the physical level or at a more occult level like murders and suicide they cling to us disappointments frustrations failure these are ways we have reacted and therefore these formations remain even though things are gone so past karma is not that this person did this to me next life i am going to take a revenge that's a crude understanding of past karma that oh that person had made me you know there are peculiar stories and shubindo writes about it very humorously that there are funny stories that a child at a young age you know becomes sick and then eventually dies and the father who was a rich man spent almost a fortune on his treatment so shirbindo says that before death the child says that uh, you know last birth you had borrowed this much money from me so this time i have taken it away and he laughs at this story this is crude understanding of past karma that i am getting hurt by somebody because i had hurt somebody i have cheated someone so the person is cheating me it is not at all like that but the consciousness of being cheated the consciousness that i have cheated they are like imprints and both will hinder my progress not only my cheating somebody will hinder my progress even this idea that i have been cheated will hinder my progress and it will return upon me again and again like a bondage again uh, you know around my feet so we have to get free from that that's the basic thing it's not the actions but the consciousness that sticks to us energies that stick to us the formations that stick to us because names and form keep changing yeah that's very simple see it's a question of sincerity if the aim is practical life we should follow practical laws very simple <laughs> if the aim is social life we should follow social laws if the aim is religious life follow religious law is the aim of is yoga the highest then follow the highest law now in everything there will be some sacrifice involved if i decide to follow the practical life because my aim is practical things then i am sacrificing the yogic life and the highest life it will it is bound to happen if my aim is social life that you know if i like many people i'll give an example marriages now i take this example because this is a you know silliest thing and people make such a show of it and you know particularly in the indian context gifts and the gift should be good sized and you know good wrapped and all those things happen 
and a stupid man will come sitting on a ghodi so all this is so ridiculous no and uh, people say what to do you know i am related therefore i have to go fine we make a choice so what happens we have sacrificed something else in the bargain we may not value it at this point but when a person grows old says i don't know i tried to follow the integral yoga but it's very difficult but actually it's because of the insincerity now i can make another choice that i am not going to go for the marriage because it's going to sully my consciousness i am not going to go for the party because it it's going to uh, reduce my consciousness to a lower level i will have to sacrifice my promotions probably the relatives may tell me that yeah, this fellow is a bit crazy since the time he has started reading shurabindo he has grown mad even say you know this is not the way of spiritual life spiritual life we isko thodi bolte and they will say all kinds of things hold opinions but one sacrifices but in the bargain you will grow closer to the divine this is a very beautiful when this conflict mira had of course we can practice equanimity and do these things by an offering this is the other part but sometimes there has to be a choice so mira when she had this conflict because on one side she is supposed to follow the life when she is married the in-laws house their dharma is her dharma so they used to cook meat because they are shaktas and mira loved krishna and krishna likes sweets maybe he also likes samosas i don't know but certainly he is not he doesn't like meat it doesn't look like he doesn't mind it but you know he's not fond of those things he's sweet and benevolent and you know uh, his ways are full of delight so she doesn't know what to do and then she's also torn in a conflict between her love for obeying her husband and obedience to krishna so she wrote a letter to tulsidas please resolve my conflict i am caught between my family and krishna what do i do so very beautiful reply tulsidas gives and it's a beautiful bhajan jaake priyana ram vedehi so chhadiye koti bari sang sam jaddapi param sanehi and then he gives example from ramayana which is regarded as you know uh, an icon of social <laughs> we have reduced the ramayana to an icon of social ethics but he says bali guru tajo vibhishan bandhu bharat mahatari bali abandoned his guru for the sake of truth and divine vibhishan abandoned his brother for the sake of truth and the divine and bharat abandoned his mother for the sake of truth and the divine so this is the great path we will be called upon to make choices and that's where our sincerity will count and in the end depending on the sum of our sincerity the result will be shown before us so it's best to do that but if one is compelled if one is not yet ready for that kind of sacrifice then one should try to practice equanimity and try to remember the lord even in the midst of everything i faced this in grim earnest in my life in the indian air force so parties were a must so when i stopped going then i was branded ki he doesn't come to parties so it was a choice then sometimes it was a compulsion to go simply because as a departmental head you have to go because questions may be asked things may be asked even in a party so people are drinking alcohol i won't drink but i would remember mother and just be hang around there 
So it became an opportunity to observe people's nature and Shubhinda said that you cannot do in the world as you would do in an ashram. So then you have to practice equanimity. That's the only other option. It's a tapasya, not just karma yoga. <laughs> Provided we take it as a tapasya, everything can become karma yoga. Subtly, family life is a wonderful opportunity to do tapasya, to practice sacrifice, true love, etc., etc. But most often, we end up simply aggrandizing the ego. Most often, family life ends up either into a conflict or the poor lady has to listen because I am the man of the house then it's hardly karma yoga or simply a question of social duties and their segregation. I will earn the livelihood, you cook at home. So then it's not karma yoga. Karma yoga is only when the karma is done in the spirit of yoga. That means I have to love the wife not for the sake of what I may get from her but in the spirit of non-attachment and in the spirit of renunciation of my ego, desire and expectation and in the spirit of loving the divine mother in her. Then it will become karma yoga. Subtly it can become a great karma yoga and a great tapasya. Like in Draupadi's case, it was a great tapasya and you know she loved only Krishna. So we can turn anything into karma yoga. If a battle, why not family life? But if done, not automatically. Simply doing my duties doesn't lead me to karma yoga. Even if they are social duties and religious obligations, they are not karma yoga. Ah, yes. <laughs> Very beautiful that is. Three things that make a man, actually it's like this. Mother says, no law can liberate women unless they liberate themselves. And there are three things that make a woman slave to a man and there are three things that make a man slave to a woman. So what are the things that make a man slave to a woman? Desire for sexual gratification. Number one. Number two, desire for possession and control and domination. At least one person is there who will listen to me. Thank God the women are rebelling and men are getting liberated. <laughs> even they are saying no to sex and it's very good. Nowadays even in India the Supreme Court ruling has come. On one side there is a gay sex, on the other side there is a ruling that if you have sex without the woman's consent and even if it is marriage, it's illegal. Very good. Because it's one step closer to truth. And it will liberate men. The third thing is desire for the small little comforts of family life. Ah, I'm very tired. Every man after reaching somehow is very tired. <laughs> Television. Thoda cha. Chai bana dena. That's it. Gone. What is being cooked? <laughs> Priya is here, I suppose. <laughs> what, what is there for food? Huh. What, is, what is there for food? Then there are other things. He also says three things which make a woman slave to man. That is also important, you know, because we should not read only one side. Somebody once came to me, you know, saying that we are Catholics, we can't take divorce because the lady wanted a separation, the man would not. So I said, why? 
He said, no, in the Bible it is written that, you know, a woman has to do this, that, this, that. I said, I am sure, I have highest regard for Christ as an avatar. He must have written something also about men. And you are not going to show me, I am going to ask the lady. And sure enough, there was something also for men. So there is something also about no law can liberate women unless they liberate themselves from these three slaveries. First slavery is attraction to man and his strength. Some of women have this idea. Men are stronger. Thank God that is also gone. See how new age is coming. They don't care. Maleshwari and who not, you know. Women are stronger. Second is the desire for motherhood. For this they have to depend on men. Hopefully in the next 50 years they won't need to depend. Clones and God knows adoption and all kinds of things will come. And the third is the desire for security. Now all these three things are going away automatically. That's why men and women are getting freed from each other. Because of the action of the new consciousness. They are learning to live as friends. And not for these things which is very beautiful. Very often people say that new age has come. What is the sign? This is the sign. The three slaveries which mother spoke of. People are getting free from that. I mean now men and women don't just live together because of physical attraction. Because of a comradeship. Companionship. Happy with each other. Common aspiration. It's a wonderful thing. And similarly both have an equal say. Both are working. They both share. They must share the work. They can't say that, you know, small comforts of married life. And women refuse possessive position of, oh, who are you? Maybe my husband. Get lost. That's it. <laughs> so they are Kali Bhav, Chandi Bhav. And the reverse is also true. That women are no more dependent on either man's strength or, you know, security. Motherhood is one thing for which they still depend on man. And if a woman can transcend that, she'll be completely free. So these are the three slaveries. Okay? So shall we... Can we just for a brief while sit quietly? <coughs> 